0: Welcome to Practical
1: Access. I'm Lisa Deker. And I'm Rebecca Hines. And Lisa, as you know, today's guest is an expert in many things. <laughs> yes. uh, but I am happy to introduce Dr. Pamela, air quotes, Sissy Carroll, uh, who is the dean uh, here at UCF in the College of Community Innovation and Education. But we're asking her today some questions about what I think is her true passion. It's something we have in common. We are both former English teachers. And so we thought we'd we'd try to get Dr. Carol down off of the high perch and ask her, you know, Dr. Carol, thinking back to your days as a teacher, I know one of your passions is to help those kids who may be at disadvantages economically, um, and other societal factors you know what can we do that's our topic today what can we do for those kids who are coming to school whether they're little kids whether they're coming to your middle school class what's the first thing we need to think about in terms of kids who are coming from backgrounds that might have
2: disadvantage well thank you for um, inviting me to to chat with you two um, wonderful colleagues and educators First of all, uh, you know, when when kids come into our classrooms, uh, the first thing we have to do is is understand what they bring with them, not what they don't have. So we have to think about the, the opportunities to interact with them and in children, whether they're elementary, middle school or high school kids, they bring stories with them. Um, some stories we want them to keep bottled uh, up because they, they aren't particularly appropriate maybe for sharing in school but if we can get them to tell stories to share stories verbally and then to begin to write stories to exchange stories with each other we can really um, begin to um, build literacy skills that way so even if they are are children who are among the um, over 6,200 in Orange County last year who were uh, living in homelessness, or um, the almost 10,000, if you include in Osceola County, who are living in homelessness, for instance, um, and they, they may not come with new clothes or clean clothes or um, having had um, breakfast until they get to school. They can come with stories. They can come with imagination. They can come with other people's ideas to share. So we take advantage of that. We can talk to them and we can listen to them to show them that their ideas matter. And so even if they, one lesson that a, a middle school student taught me is that even if they don't have the ability to use academic language or to spell very well, they still have ideas. That they need to get out so sometimes we just have to sit and listen to them and help them articulate their ideas help them form their stories write it down for them and help them shape those ideas
0: i love it i love it well i think you know my own mother was a librarian so i felt very blessed that books were not only in my life but i could get them for free all the time you know the library is such a gift and i know you're Your passion has been on our downtown campus to really bring life to many of those students that you just mentioned that you care so deeply about. So I wanted to kind of go with the parent role. So I'm a parent. Uh, I have maybe limited choices of books. We do know the library is free and and available, but that also takes ability to go get a library card. But I have a book. What's your first advice to parents who are trying to shape literacy in their child, like where do they start? What are some things that they should be doing at home? And especially some of those parents that maybe don't have the background and maybe say, mm, I don't know, I'm not the best reader myself. How do I help my child?
2: Um, you know, One thing that that I think it's natural for us to assume is that parents are readers, that they know how to read. So um, if, if we start there and assume that a child and a parent can read together, we've got a real plus. Um, that maybe the parent reads a page and then the child reads a couple of sentences and the parent reads some more and the child reads some. So it's that kind of back and forth. It takes time and it takes a parent sitting down with the child and, and putting away the, the dishes or the sweeping or, or the television or the cell phone. But that's the way that, that both the, the literacy skills develop the, the parent can you know read a paragraph and then ask the child what's going on in the story so um, comprehension begins to develop and is checked and then the child can read a little and the parent can ask so what's going on you know so it's that kind of back and forth um, and eventually the parent can ask the, the child to talk about how the story, is growing so it's really talking about plot development and character development and those kinds of things you could ask the child to do things like draw what's happening in the story you know those kinds of of um, literacy skills that aren't using written words but are using other other methods of demonstrating what they understand Um, you know one thing that um, a researcher at University of Texas Austin is encouraging is that pre-service teachers who are working in communities um, with adults who are learning English, for instance, might work in groups with adults and the pre-service teacher would read a book and the adults who might be speakers of English would read the same book. Uh, but in Spanish. So maybe, uh, for instance, um, A House on Man- Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. And so wouldn't that be great to have a group of pre-service teachers who are reading that book and they'll read the first chapter and then a parent um, who is a speak- native speaker of Spanish reads it in Spanish. So their their home language is valued in that exchange, but then they get to talk about the book across languages. Love it, um, love it. So see, yeah. I,
1: I think that's a great that's a great example, and you segued nicely into the teacher part, which I was about to ask about. But from my experience in working uh, both as an English teacher first, and then later as a teacher of kids with disabilities, especially kids with emotional and behavioral disorders, you know, you mentioned early on this idea of stories and storytelling. I think. Some teachers feel a little uncomfortable with the stories they hear, which you also mentioned. But what advice would you have for teachers who are like, oh, that really resonates. I want to hear the stories, but I don't know when to say, oh, that's that's too much of a story. So how, as a teacher, do do I encourage storytelling but keep some parameters in which I feel comfortable?
2: Yeah, you know, one thing um, that that I personally have, have found useful is to um, to kind of build an assignment um, with a fence around it. Kind of, you know, give them a yard, but build a fence around that yard so they can play in it. So you might say um, in, in today's um, classroom, because um, really in, in the U.S., more children have cell phones than they have plumbing in their houses so if the children wanted to go out and do um, take do a do a um, like um, a picture uh, take pictures and do a narrated tour of a particular area either in their neighborhood or their school or a church or a store or something that's that's important to them And as a teacher, you would want to specify where that place is or give them some choices because you don't want to say, well, go to your home and take pictures because that could be devastating to some children. They may not have a home for one thing, or they could have a a home that would be an embarrassment to them. So you might say, well, go to the, the school and find some spot that's, you know, x y or z it might be the most beautiful spot in the school the most unusual spot you know whatever and have them take some pictures and write about it do a little narrative or it might be a high school group that's going to do some history or you may have pre-service teachers who are doing it on the campus uh, on which they're taking their classes so they they're practicing doing some um Some kind of note taking, some digital literacy by taking pictures, maybe doing a voice recording and then coming back and sharing that information, doing a little debriefing. They could even do it on um, augmented reality with goggles and things like that if if you wanted them to. But it gives them a focus so that the storytelling is shaped by the assignment Mm -hmm. and it's not just, you know, off the top of their head.
0: I love the yard and the fence analogy. I think that's yeah exactly what what I think teachers need to remember because, again, we want kids' voice to be heard. But as you said so well, sometimes we want to moderate that voice to be sure that it's appropriate for our settings at that point in time. So with that, you know, I'm going to lead you in a little bit of a different direction, but kind of along the same lines I know you're just as passionate about preparing great teachers, hence the reason you're a dean, and and we really, really appreciate your leadership in our college. So what about um, literacy for teachers do you think is our best way of helping shape teachers, not just teachers, but teachers working in downtown, urban, children that are homeless, second language settings? What can we do we need to be thinking about in our work in preparing teachers or as practicing teachers for to do that better or to recruit more people into the field?
2: UCF in our teacher preparation programs have been doing a a better job of recently, I think, is getting uh, pre-service teachers into schools, into school settings more often and more intentionally to work in those settings so that they understand, number one, that children are children and children want to learn. And it doesn't matter what their their backgrounds are so much. um, If you show them that you are there to teach them and you still have expectations for them, regardless of what their background is, um, children have no say in where they were born, Um, what circumstances they were born into, whether they were born with, um, a disabling condition or not. Um, but they do have the ability to help inform their own future. And so our job is so it has to be so invested in helping them step into their future. Um, and and that's where I, I hope that today's teachers are moving with students not holding them back but helping them move to the future Um, we we have to recognize that the that that the children who for instance are growing up in poverty who are coming to school hungry who are coming to school without any books in their homes or without families who are reading to them or telling them stories and that kind of thing that it doesn't do those children any good to pat them on the head and say, bless your heart. I'm just gonna let you sleep this morning because I know that you know, things were bad at your house last night. That child will not progress and become a thinker and a learner if he's allowed to sleep through all the lessons. So we have to still have standards for that child that he or she learns. We have to push them and sometimes that seems mean, but we can push them with kindness and gentleness and reasonable standards, we can structure their learning in a way that they can achieve. And we support them while they achieve. Their achievement and their, their their pace will look different than somebody else's pace because they don't have the support at home that another child may have. But it doesn't mean they don't achieve. They just achieve differently.
1: And, and Sissy, I think that,
2: that sums up lots
1: of student populations including kids with disabilities and kids of all abilities really so I I would like to ask my final question a simple one possibly what's the one thing you think every teacher
2: should read a little a little bitty children's book called a hundred dresses um about about a child who's who's growing up in poverty but brings with her she wears the same old ratty dress to school every day but every day she's she's creating in her mind uh, an entire gigantic wardrobe Um, and I love that story because it shows the, the power of of a child to overcome her circumstances with her creativity and her imagination and her classmates make fun of her and they they don't think that she brings anything to school with her and at the end of the story of course she shows them that she does she's created this whole portfolio of dresses um out of paper but but still it's this it, this magnificent portfolio so perfect um, love it that would be a that would be a good one so- we've been influenced by siblings and and in our journey. And I,
0: I just wondered if you were comfortable and would be willing to share with us not only your journey, but how that's changed your trajectory as a teacher. Because I think often people don't understand um, teaching isn't, you know, it's just not an eight. It just doesn't naturally happen that lots of life journeys in different pathways. Do you mind sharing any of that with us just to help our listeners understand kind of the influence of being a sibling in the pathway that's, that's had influence on you in life.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm happy to, I, um, my older sister five years older was, um, had severe disabilities, um, intellectual. She, um, lived until she was 53, but was always diapered, fed did not have language, um, but physically grew up. But, um, uh, was very loved and loving. Um, and that's that was her main expression. She'd smile, laugh, hug people and and all of that. Um, but I, I think in, it, it, her influence was really strong on our family. And I have to say my, my twin brother, my older brother, as well as myself, because we saw that by her being, different and yet the way my family treated her through love and care and her reflecting that back that different wasn't bad she was just different and the willingness of my grandmom who lived next door and and basically raised my sister so that our parents could deal with uh, all the schedules and sports and stuff that the three that my brothers and I were dealing with Um, could, you know, my my mom could manage all of that while my sister was at my grandma's house. Um, It just, it really kind of taught me that you respect people for what they have and what they're able to bring and show you and she showed me love she showed me the value of just life and love and what it brings out in people not what you not what you're able to do for people but what you bring out in people and i think that really has shaped me you know people will say well why weren't you a an exceptional ed teacher then your sister was (laughs) so handicapped and and i i just i i I don't really have an answer for that except that I've found my best expression in reading and writing and um, and had a, a kind of talent for that. Well, I so, think you were a special ed
0: teacher through your love of
2: literacy and what we've seen
0: here in your leadership. So I know in January you're heading off to bike and enjoy life as your next journey, but uh, we cannot thank you enough for being on the podcast and for, again, your leadership. So thank you, Dean Carroll. Thank you for joining us on Practical Access. And if you have questions, you can post them to our Facebook page or send us a tweet on
2: at Access Practical. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Speaker and <laughs> Hines, and for all you do for all of us.